Welcome back to the Happy Hour, a palate cleansing podcast, where we talk about happy news and creative solutions to the issues of today. And we believe news is best heard over a glass of your favorite drink, whatever that may be. I'm Malachi Wade. And I'm Shaylin Martos. And today we're going to update you on some vaccine news and talk about black excellence, space, and of course, a special cocktail just in time for Valentine's Day. And we are joined by our guest, Lola Chase, an SF State alum and current digital production assistant for ABC7 News, KGO Bay Area. Without further ado, let's get started with what's in the headlines. As of Thursday, Johnson & Johnson have officially applied to the FDA for emergency use authorization for its single-dose vaccine. They had promised to provide the U.S. with 12 million doses this month and 100 million more throughout the spring, according to Politico. However, they say it may take them until the end of April to provide the initial 12 million doses. The company stated that their vaccine is 72% effective against moderate and severe COVID in the U.S., according to CNN. But many reports say that the vaccine will still be a game changer in immunizing as many Americans as we can. We should hear from the FDA in the next few weeks. The Wednesday episode of The Bay Podcast from KQED detailed some important information about California's vaccine rollout, including the change of eligibility to focus on primarily age rather than jobs and risk. There is still a lot of confusion statewide about how to make an appointment. However, a new volunteer-run website called VaccinateCA.com is helping people get information about where they can make appointments. Dr. Shirley Nash-Weber was sworn in as the new California Secretary of State last week, taking over from Senator Alex Padilla and kicking off Black History Month right. Dr. Weber served four terms as Democratic Assembly member for San Diego and is the author of Assembly Bill 392 in 2019, which restricts police officers from using deadly force unless necessary instead of reasonable. While this may not seem very different to our listeners, there are very distinct definitions that she outlined. AB 392 was a revised version of a 2018 bill Dr. Weber authored after the police shooting of Stefan Clark in Sacramento, according to KQED. She is the first Black Secretary of State in California. In this position, Dr. Weber will serve as the Chief Elections Officer of California, overseeing all of our federal and state elections. She's also in charge of maintaining the running database of all registered voters. During her confirmation, Dr. Weber said, holding back tears, I tell people how ironic it is that a girl whose father could not vote, whose grandparents never had a chance to vote, is now responsible for 40 million Californians and their right to vote. Oakland unanimously approved an immediate $5 an hour hazard pay supplement for supermarket workers this Tuesday, according to the SF Chronicle. Other Bay Area cities are considering following Oakland's example, including San Jose, Berkeley, Concord, and Antioch. The city council stated that this decision will affect about 2,000 grocery workers. This effort is long overdue and won't protect these essential workers from contracting the coronavirus, but hopefully will set a precedent to prioritize the needs of the people. The Community Music Center in San Francisco works to make music accessible for all, and during the COVID-19 pandemic, they've revamped their services to provide online learning. This upcoming Tuesday is the launch of the Community Music Center's eight-part free workshop series, CMC Sessions. In honor of Black History Month, the first workshop is the impact of Black culture on ensemble singing with Maestro and Nola Curtis. 
This session will explore how Black culture influenced American singing groups, from barbershop quartets to gospel, jazz, and country. Now, there's something you really don't learn about in ensemble chorus, but I do still know every word to the circle of life, including the Swahili. Nice. And I still remember a lot of the monologues from all the Shakespeare plays I did in my theater days, too. It really sticks with you. Mm-hmm. It really does. I, I actually I pick up my cat pretty often and I mm-hmm. sing the, the song to her like, not super. Yeah, she hates it. Classic. She hates it. <laughs> <laughs> the workshops will run from February until May, according to the CMC's marketing manager, Ann Mitchell, and will include discussions, demonstrations, and musical tips. The Impact of Black Culture on Ensemble Singing will be held on Tuesday, February 9th from 6 to 7 p.m. You can reserve tickets for free and find out more information about the Community Music Center and the CMC sessions at sfcmc.org. This next story comes from the New York Times and is occupying a lot of space in my head right now. NASA's Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TESS, started looking for exoplanets in 2018. Exoplanets are any planet in an Earth-like sweet spot that could potentially host life in other solar systems. Very cool. Very cool. Even cooler, TESS recently discovered a rare star system about 1,900 light years away from us. The source of mysteriously brightening and then dimming light is a system of six stars called TIC 1687898840, better known as the backup name for Elon Musk and Grimes's kid. <laughs> the system consists of three pairs of binary stars. Each star orbits a twin, and the three pairs orbit a central point of gravity. Hella cool. This system is rare and exciting because NASA saw the stars eclipsing each other, never seen before in a six-star system, according to the official report. NASA calls this a sextuply eclipsing sextuple star system, which brings me back to my theater tongue twister days. Say that ten times fast. You want to hear me say sextuply eclipsing sextuple star systems six times fast? Six times fast. You want to hear me do it again? (laughs) (laughs) If you were on a planet in this system, you would have two suns like Tatooine and see four more very bright stars in the sky. No exoplanets have been confirmed yet, but these three binary star systems could provide that sweet spot for potential life. Back here on Earth, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be joined by the brilliant Lola Chase, who will talk about working in broadcast news and expressing queerness in the workplace. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Look at that! Look at him go! Look, look at that tail! Oh. Welcome back. We are joined by Lola Chase, who uses he, they, and they, them pronouns. They are an SF State graduate and currently work as a digital production assistant for ABC7 KGO Bay Area News. Welcome to the happy hour. How are you? I feel good. I got my coffee. I'm good. It's the morning. Coming into yeah. consciousness with you guys feels nice. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's very early. <laughs> We're all waking up together, and that's great. Awesome.
Lola, we'd love to start just getting to know you a little bit more. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? I am from LA, Redondo Beach specifically. Um, I grew up there, went to high school there. I was born in Portland, Oregon, if you want to go way back to that. but <laughs> um, And then I moved to Sacramento for community college when I was 17, which was, I was a youngin. <laughs> and then um, I transferred to SF State and had a lovely time there. I was the photo editor of Golden Gate Express. Oh, cool. Nice. Yeah. And... Then I graduated. It's now been a year since I graduated and have been working at ABC7. You were able to like lock down this this job pretty much like right out of school, right? Yeah. I started as an intern at the assignment news desk. And mm-hmm. if you get that position, they really just throw you right into it. And they're like, pick yeah. up the phone, talk to some strangers, help navigate who's going to go with what um, photographer and keep track of where Sky 7 is, which is our helicopter, and listen to these police wow. scanner radios. It was doing intense wow. for someone just walking into the newsroom, let me tell you. And that was back in January. So three months later, pandemic hit and they're like, no more interns. You got to go. And so we were all yeah. out of it for many months and I'm the only intern that came back (laughs) Um, in August they hired me back as a digital production assistant because I was bugging them that's that's a good tip you know if just keep following up with them so you you work in broadcast now Mm -hmm. and since since you and I have met because we've known each other like since I started at SF State I think you were one of the first people that I was like that person's cool. I want to get to know that person. Yes. Um, so ever since we met, you've wanted to work in broadcast. And uh, we've had a good number of conversations about the disconnect between like print and, and broadcast journalism. Why do you think that there's so much tension? And, and how do you navigate that as someone who's worked in both? Yeah, especially having been in the journalism department with you and working um, in a lot mm-hmm. of print and online People, I think, look down on broadcast because it's simplified versions of stories. It's not your in-depth articles that you're going to be seeing. I like to think of it as like bite-sized pieces of information. The way that they break it up is a way that it's just in layman's terms. Anyone who watches it can really understand. And yeah. so I think people want to invalidate it because it's so simple. But I think that there's something more accessible and important about it being so simple. I think it's also about modernization of society right now and moving. What direction is journalism moving in? Can we continue doing broadcasts? Can, or is it going to move into a more of a streaming outlet? Or we're already seeing it trickle into social media in every sort of way. And both outlets are very similar, print and broadcast, in that they're moving into these online outlets as well. So I don't think we need to be at odds with each other, in my opinion. You kind of started to talk a little bit about what you do as a production assistant, but could you break that down a bit more and what your daily job life is like? Yeah, absolutely. I was speaking more so on my experiences with the assignment desk and then transitioning into being a digital production assistant. That's kind of a hybrid between being on the digital team and being a PA. And so Mm -hmm. like my PA duties, I get to run the teleprompter. Like I said, I find file footage gotta get that b-roll mm-hmm. oh that good b-roll yes <laughs> i am the king of b-roll 
(laughs) (laughs) I answer calls from the public, which are no doubt fascinating. I also am involved in the digital team, which means I help work up stories into posts that we can put up on our website and clip videos to them from our on-air segments. And I also am putting out push alerts, working up social media copy, and doing constant copy editing. So just because I'm in broadcast don't mean I don't write. I'm constantly all (laughs) up in that AP style. (laughs) Something... That is just so interesting about being in broadcast is that people think they can just call you like you're the human search engine. (laughs) Um, And they'll, they'll ask you questions about what's going on every day. And so they'll ask me why they haven't gotten their stimulus check yet. What's going on with EDD? When's American Idol going to be on? (laughs) Me looking it up like I'm a programming director. (laughs) And then a lot of people call in with news tips. That's what the line is supposed to be for. You just get all kinds of other calls in between and you only get like one or two actual news tips from the day that I'm going to write down and pass on to my team. I feel like a therapist at times, people just want to like process what they watched on the news and say, oh my Uh God, I I watched this and I just can't believe that this is going on in our country. And I'll be like, wow, that's totally understandable. Like I can see where you're coming from and they'll just vent and then they'll be like, okay, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, cool, call back if you have any actual tips. (laughs) Right. But I think that's like, that's, that's a really interesting aspect of like your job and, and broadcast in general, because print reporters don't have people calling them up every day going like, hey, can you explain to me what's going on? Even though this isn't exactly what it's supposed to be for, people are calling in for support and and to help understand what's going on. So it's like a very direct connection. Yeah, Yeah. definitely like more accessible because a lot of like Mm -hmm. feedback about written things and conversations happen after it's been published and that reporters moved on to other things. Yeah. Yeah, That's interesting. During the pandemic, have you been working uh, remotely or like hybrid or are you back in the physical studio Yeah, so I'm one of the few that actually gets to be inside the building and work there, mostly because there's just like so many computer programs and equipment that I have to use in person. And we got little plexiglass dividers between our our desks that I have now been collecting the expo markers and drawing all over for fun. And since you've been working there for, I guess, like a few months and then a few months off and now a few months, what are the things that you love about it? I love when the stories that I take on the phone actually become real stories on air. There's something really special about just having a piece in the pie, <laughs> having no knowing that you contributed to the thing that people are actually going to contemplate and think about later. That's really cool. I helped find a bunch of old file footage of Kamala Harris and we ended up doing an entire documentary on her. It's getting nominated for an Emmy. (laughs) So that's pretty neat. I just seeing things like actually come to fruition. It's a super rewarding part of the job. Being in the newsroom and being taken seriously by other adults. Super rewarding. Being a student, I feel like um, you're not always 
taken seriously. It's cool to be acknowledged like as a real journalist and that you're working hard. And I feel like even in college, I was doing some of the most like meaningful journalism work of my life and people didn't always acknowledge that as like important as it is. And so mm-hmm. um, walking into a place where you're mutually respected by your peers definitely makes a difference in your self-esteem and confidence in what you do. And even, you know, having experienced that mutual respect and kind of a transition to a real life post-college job, what are some of the challenges that you faced? It's challenging to consume all of this news every single day and kind of be done with it the next day. We'll start a story that day and you're done with that project by the end of the day. That's just the nature of broadcast news. Even though we're still going to talk about reoccurring topics, it's a brand new slate every day. Sometimes you're just going to have to compartmentalize some of the things you consume because there's a lot of sad, troubling news throughout the day. And sometimes I'll be scrolling through like wildfire footage of people's homes burning or people in the ICU capacity beds. You just have to constantly face the reality of the world. And that is a lot to bear on one's shoulders. For me, it's really important to be in therapy. We need to acknowledge that that's a lot for anyone to process constantly. There's so much trauma that we that we deal with on a regular basis, and it can kind of make you numb. So it must be like it's that's why I tell everyone go to therapy. And I love that that you do that, too. If you just suppress it, it's really going to hurt you in the long run. Yeah. We like to talk about solutions on the happy hour, how we can turn these really difficult situations, these difficult stories into like happy stories that actually talk about creating lasting change, systemic change in communities. So we just like to know what, what kind of news KGO values and what sort of stuff they report on. And also how your values for reporting and stories and whatnot that you touched on as well kind of mix with yeah. that and maybe what yeah. you'd like to see progress in. There's a lot of development as far as talking about race and social justice. I'll bring that up a million times because it's been just so important to our station in the past year. I think it's important to have ongoing conversations about social justice. Rent control has been a big topic. Why are we facing this issue about the need for affordable housing, the need for rent control, the need to occupy all of these homes that are currently vacant? And yeah. so... We have to ask those hard questions about how are we utilizing space? So it's it's about going deeper than the story of the day. And I think it is very possible to touch on deeper things in broadcast. And I think it's important to do it because people are very um, visually engaged. Storytelling aspect of watching it on TV can connect to people in a new way that you might not feel when you're reading it. KGO is working specifically to address these issues with something called Building a Better Bay Area. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, so I think that's the solutions journalism that we wanted to touch on a bit. And I think that they're doing Mm -hmm. that so that we can focus on certain pillars. So it's like health, education, race and social justice. I think there's like five pillars. Mm -hmm. And so it's just touching on different aspects of society that we want to constantly be addressing and working on. 
and making better. So having these kind of pillars also brings us back to these like story topics that we should be diving deeper into. What's this aspect of it that we haven't covered? An important question we always ask as a journalist, what, what haven't we seen about this topic? So yeah, I think that's a big part of it. And with all of those, we usually have um, a call to action. You can go to our website at like abc7news.com slash take action, and it'll have a list of resources of ways you can get involved in your community. I think that's a cool way to just take it to that next step. You're watching this, you're understanding this. Now you can do something if you want. And I think that last part is the most important. Looking at the Better Bay Area page, They do have things like that. Here are places to donate. Here are places to go and volunteer through the holiday season. Some people have this this idea of broadcast that it's like always trying to profit off of people's pain. So it's really nice to see, you know, KGO is working specifically for the community, hiring people who know about the community and trying to present resources and solutions to the community. Working for a big corporation like ABC owned by Disney can make it hard to be your authentically queer self within that space. Uh, have you experienced anything like that? Any any struggles within the workplace? Yeah, I was so worried when I realized it was owned by Disney that I was going to be a big sellout, like joining this uh, <laughs> company station. It, the reality for journalism these days is everything's bought up by media conglomerates. And so it's hard to avoid unless you're at that like local newspaper independently owned, probably understaffed, et cetera, et cetera. Being in this company where I feel like we're abundant in resources owned by above, it took me a while to read the environment. Like, is this actually a safe place or is it just performative activism of saying, you know, oh yeah, we totally include everyone so you don't sue us. But <laughs> it is cool to see actual care for the, the hiring of people in diverse situations, having a like race and social justice beat reporter, someone dedicated to certain topics. Operating in this space with a focus on race and social justice as a white person means that my voice isn't the most important thing of the day. And it really should be about uplifting my coworkers' voices and the sources that are black indigenous people of color. Yeah. That representation means a lot to me. As a queer person, I have been observing who are my queer allies potentially in this space. And um, recently I got connected with one of my supervisors in the web department and they added they them pronouns to their Slack channel name. And that meant a lot to me in seeing that representation. And so it's uh, I've been having conversation with that person about how they feel So that's why it's important as a young person to find your allies within the company and um, make those connections because, yeah, you can't be totally sure walking into a new environment whether or not it's safe to be your full authentic self as much as you would love to be. So connecting with this person, I was like, why did you feel safe doing this? And they were like, well, I've gotten an amazing amount of positive feedback from like the web team and from other people. And I've still been able to get into this higher position at this place. To me, that's, that's an indicator of success. And that's an indicator that maybe I could do this too. And maybe I can be that for someone in the future. Uh, Like I'll make my elder queers proud. And then my baby gays will also be able to see that and do the same, hopefully having experience with intersecting identities can also give you more of compassion for people who are also minorities in the workspace and realizing that 
you might not connect with them on their particular identity and their struggle to be heard, but you know what it's like to have to figure out yourself within that workspace. And so yeah. I think that creates a situation where it's easier to empathize and be an ally for others. Yes. Totally. Strengthening our empathy is the strongest bonds of our community. So from what we've been talking about, there seems to be this state of transition from being a full-time student to entering the professional world or beginning to freelance and starting to figure out your identity as a professional journalist. What has this been like for you to navigate that transition? It has been a lot about trying to establish new routines mm-hmm. when you're new, especially in the broadcast world. You're going to have some chaotic hours starting out. And so... On Sundays, I work at 4 (laughs) a.m. And then Monday, I work at 1 p.m. And Tuesday, I work at 10 (laughs) a.m. And sometimes I'll get another like 6 a.m. shift. (laughs) Depends on the week. That means you have to value your sleep and your self-care and make sure you're not burning out because that's so easy for us to do and what we're used to doing in college. People think that they're going to be more useful to their company or whoever they're working for if they do the most and they're overproductive and they can burn out, but really burning out is not going to help you do that. And something I noticed with being in the web department, when I took the time on my stories and I made sure all the details were right before submitting it, they valued that so much more than when I rushed it and I tried to get in as many stories as I could in one day. Mm -hmm. they want to know that you can have the ability to get it right the first time. And that means it does take time. It is a process. Allow yourself to be in that process. As you're learning that and applying that, like what's next for you? What are some future goals, some things you want to work on? I am really interested in becoming an anchor or reporter. That's still my passion. Um, It's what I started going into broadcast with. And I wasn't sure if I was going to stay on that path once I actually entered the space. But now that I'm seeing all my options, I still really feel called to that and love it. So that's what I hope to do and or be like a camera person. And um, I'm part of this next generation advisory council. So it's like 20 somethings and it's kind of a leadership position. We all pitch stories and ideas and how we can make the workplace more diverse, inclusive, intersectional. So I'm loving that. And they just paired us up with what they're calling allies. At first it was like a mentor thing, but I'm like, this is a leadership program. Maybe we shouldn't have mentors. So they're allies. So they're people who are um, already in those positions that we want. There's all kinds of things to do when you are at like a media conglomerate like me. There's lots of like basically extracurriculars you can be involved in. And that's really fun. You can meet people and um, your higher ups are taking note of you being involved in those things. So it might help you get promoted later. Thank you so much for joining us, Lola. Um, Is there anything else that you'd like to plug? (laughs) Social media? Yeah, you can hop on my Insta if you feel like it. It's The Loving Lola. It is focused on a lot of my photojournalism kind of work and my life. Mm -hmm. And so very involved on there. Um, And yeah, you can always 
see the link in my bio to my portfolio and see all that fun stuff of just the journalism work I've been diving into. So we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with our final story and a cocktail recipe. Stay tuned, everybody. And welcome back. Thank you again, Lola. We are so happy you took the time to chat with us. Mm-hmm. Now, whether you're excited for or dreading it, next Sunday is Valentine's Day. Technically, it's the first Valentine's Day in lockdown, which makes it so much worse. We here at the Happy Hour commiserate with those of you who won't be able to spend this performative holiday with a quote-unquote Valentine, for whatever reason. Personally, I'll be celebrating my four-year anniversary with my partner on Valentine's Day. And some people do get to spend Valentine's Day with their partners, so wow, congrats! Thank you. It's actually is really hard to say that and sound genuine. I really hope you're happy. God damn it. Is that a Parks and Rec reference? (laughs) Of course it is. Of course it is. (laughs) Naturally. I'm just upset about not being able to have my Galentine slash Palentine's Day with my close friends. Honestly, me too. But one thing you can always rely on in quarantine is the company of a damn good book. Hell yeah. So here are four of our favorite romantic and maybe erotic books from queer, trans, Black, Indigenous, and authors of color to pick up and enjoy for the holiday. We'll start with the queer short story anthology Kink, edited by R.O. Kwan and Garth Greenwell, which releases on February 9th. Kink features stories from groundbreaking authors such as Roxane Gay and Carmen Maria Machado, and explores radical forms of intimacy and sex. There's some impact play, bondage, and dom-sub relationships, and more. If you're looking for variety, this collection could do the trick. Next up is The Black Tides of Heaven by Neon Yang, published in 2018. Yang is a gender non-binary author from Singapore who's credited with spearheading a new genre called silk punk with their debut Tensorate series. Think Southeast Asian fantasy tech with underlying queer themes. Absolutely. I loved it. It's so good. It honestly is really, really good. The Black Tides of Heaven is the first of the Tensorate series, so there's plenty to read after this one. And while I won't give away many details, know that this is an option for folks who like a little more gore with their queer romance. For those seeking some real-life experiences and tips for practicing radical self-love, check out Adrienne Marie Brown's Pleasure Activism, published in 2019. Within these pages, Brown interweaves personal essays, poetry, fine art, interviews, and hot and heavy homework to educate her audience on how QTBIPOC pleasure is resistance to white supremacy. Brown, along with other feminist leaders, builds a new understanding of pleasure as power. Last and arguably the most sexy is the erotic novel Masquerade by Anne Shade, published on February 2nd. A steamy lesbian drama set in 1920s Harlem, Masquerade follows two women's blossoming sexual awareness and yearning for fulfilling love. Mm. So if you're into historical erotic fiction with a bit of danger, Masquerade could satisfy your Valentine's needs. The book is available online through Bold Strokes Books, which we recommend for any lewd literary desires. And I will be spending a lot of time in my clawfoot bathtub this month, hopefully with some new fantasy novels. I wish that I had a clawfoot tub. I'd spend all my time in a clawfoot tub. Next time you come over, you can definitely take a bath or two. 
And now it's time for our tailor-made cocktail. My favorite part of the show. In honor of Valentine's Day, we present to you the pink punch in the face for when you see all of the corny couples on Instagram. This cocktail is reminiscent of a lava flow or Mai Tai with coconut cream, but our version doesn't require a blender and I'd say it's much cuter. Here's what you'll need. White rum, tropical juice, grenadine, coconut cream, and some cherries for garnish. You start with two ounces of white rum in a cocktail shaker with ice. For a non-alcoholic version, just skip the rum, it'll be just as yummy. Then you'll add two ounces of your tropical juice to the shaker. If you're doing a non-alcoholic version, add four ounces of juice. This can be mango, guava, pineapple, but if you want to do this right, use POG, passion fruit, orange, guava juice, a Hawaiian staple. The Hawaiian sun is the best. If you've had it, you know it. Next up is a half ounce of grenadine, which is a sweet pomegranate syrup used to make Shirley Temple's, which is Sprite and grenadine, and Roy Rogers, which is cola and grenadine. It's a very versatile syrup for your home bar. Then add one ounce of coconut cream, place the lid on the shaker, and shake the shit out of it. Just make sure that lid is secure. It will make a huge mess. I've done this multiple times. Then strain into a glass with ice. Then you place a cute little maraschino cherry on top or whatever garnish you have. And this drink is an adorable baby pink color. But be careful, as cute and sweet as this drink is, the rum will sneak up on you. It, re it really will. <laughs> so we hope you enjoy the pink punch in the face. And if you write a review on Apple Podcasts, DM us and we'll make a cocktail in your honor. You can find us on Instagram at THH Podcast or on Twitter at Happy Hour News. And now it's time for our last call. Shaylin, what's making you happy this week? You know, it's actually been kind of a tough week for me, but I am staying positive and mm -hmm. reaching out to those whom I closest to for support. And that makes me happy. Also, I watched Romeo plus Juliet for the first time in a decade. And damn, damn that movie is amazing. <laughs> I honestly believe it is the closest interpretation to Shakespeare's original message mm -hmm. because it is absolutely ridiculous. It's ludicrous. Like the, the set design, the costumes, the soundtrack, it's so much like it's just like a sensory overload. He really made his plays for the common people. This was the only entertainment that you had. Yeah. And you had to stand in mud for it. And they still had a great time throwing shit at the stage and yelling. <laughs> but Malachi, what's making you happy this week? My primary happy news of the week is uh, at the day of recording, I got my official email that I was graduated from SF State, congratulating Yay. me, telling me Sass. next steps. All that stuff. I still have some stuff to sort out with the system, um, but I made sure that the email was legit because I thought it was <laughs> I thought it was fake. And I was like, someone's really pulling my leg right now because I've been going through a lot <laughs> trying to graduate. But it's real and it's happening and I'll get my diploma soon. Thank you. And then I've also been having a lot of fun writing D&D &D adventures again and we're adding guests um, and I just really enjoy surprising all of the players with fun twists and new characters oh yeah this last session was amazing and we're bringing in another character into the next one so i know we're, baby I'm malachi dm is gonna be dming for five people <laughs> <laughs> and you're gonna do fantastic thank you and I've also been watching The Expanse with my sister and my dad. And we've never actually watched a TV show together before, at least 
I can remember, or like at least as adults, we've never watched a show together. So it's nice to watch a space horror with my family because it's spooky and I get scared easily. You do get scared easily. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's something that people wouldn't necessarily guess about me right off the bat. I Yeah, I think so too. So maybe that's like a new fun fact I can pull out at like an icebreaker. I remember watching Haunting of Bly Manor with you. You were, mm -hmm. you were scared as hell. Dude, nothing scarier than someone standing 500 feet away from you slightly behind a chair. <laughs> nothing scarier than lesbians. <laughs> oh no, not the lesbians. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much to our guest Lola Chase for joining us and Armand Villamoria for composing our wonderful theme music. The Happy Hour is independently produced by Malika Wade and Shaylin Martos. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye, everyone. And happy Valentine's Day. Bye. <laughs>